c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. to Fat French and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I am a slightly older Janelle, as is Jessica, actually. <laughs> yeah, our, our birthdays are very cl- in very close proximity to each other's. One of us is the Dark Universe version of the other. It's <laughs> We're not going to tell which is which, but it's Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> I come from a darker timeline. <laughs> <laughs> and today we are uh, covering Project Habakkuk. Which is an extremely oddly named uh, World War II project. That's basically what this podcast is now. It's murder intercut with ill-advised British military projects. I I like how you've remained relatively consistent in your habits, whereas my episode theme is just, what was Jessica reading on Wikipedia last night? (laughs) Oh, mine's the same. It's just that all I ever read about is murder. We, we have the same process, we just end up at different results. Uh, I am a one-trick pony, and that trick is disappearing under mysterious circumstances. So there is a tendency through him- human history that with every technological advance, that advance is m- immediately turned to the purpose of warfare. Giant kites capable of carrying a man were used for reconnaissance in ancient China, while paper lanterns similar in concept to hot air balloons were used for signaling followed by balloon warfare during the 3rd century AD. Manned cotton, paper, and silk hot air balloons arose in the late 18th century France, created by the the Montgolfier brothers from 1782 to 1784, and they saw youth in both military reconnaissance and observation only a decade later. Uh, Now, (laughs) while the Chinese knew that trapped hot air created lift, as early as the year 150 BC, apparently Joseph Montgolfier thought that the buoyant property of the air was in the smoke rather than the heat. So he favored uh, smoldering, smoke-heavy fuels. Um, <laughs> Breathing is for suckers. Good to know. If I had been uh, a late 18th century military balloonist, I would have died before getting into the air. (laughs) Honestly, that's probably a Jessica past life. That seems very plausible. That is unbelievably on brand. 18th century military balloonist is less weird than what you do right now. The other day, somebody invited me to a comedic rant-off-slash-dance-off, which I had to decline on the grounds that uh, not only am I a questionably skilled dancer, uh, I sometimes dry heave when I take the stairs too fast. (laughs) (laughs) Can confirm. Uh, We were going to have to send a Sherpa to get you to my fourth-floor walk-up apartment. I had to take those flights one at a time. We had, like, a team bringing up supplies for the various mounting stages. But, yeah, I just, I can't imagine that, like, having eyes filled with tears is particularly helpful for military observation. Right? It's like, alright, we need you to be at your absolute sharpest. Stick your head in this 18th century exhaust pipe. The first widespread use of heavier-than-air flight in warfare came in World War I in the form of early planes, 
which was likewise the advent of direct air combat, although observation balloons still saw extensive use. One of the weaknesses of early fighter planes was the length of the airstrip required for takeoff and the limited range of the planes themselves. This meant that large bombers required a relatively proximate land base to their target from which to launch, a significant barrier for primarily naval naval forces engaging a land-based enemy, as lack of air cover left them at a massive strategic disadvantage. I do like how quickly we take technology right to war. It's like, alright, oh, fire. Immediately. Fire for cooking, fire for war. Stairs for <laughs> bathroom, stairs for war. Pretty floating lantern, gassed man for war. Like, <laughs> Just that's, oh, it's just that's where it, it goes. It is immediate. It is immediate. I, for one, cannot wait for like our new Roomba overlords. <laughs> I mean, we're still doing it. Like, oh, absolutely. People were like, "Oh, look at this! We built drones to take these beautiful crane shots of these beautiful high angle landscapes," and then the U.S. government was like. Drones for war, bring me Yemen school. And it's like, oh. <laughs> what oh. if we could strap a bob to this toy? And <laughs> I just wanted really pretty pictures of the Hong Kong skyline. And it's like, nope. We can't have that. <laughs> and it's like, oh man, what if we could teach a, a robot to feel love? And it's like, what if we could teach a robot to detect emotion on the faces of prisoners? Like, immediately. Immediately. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's that's as, as as soon as we get any kind of development. It's like, oh, look, we built this really useful development. It's it's we're going to build like finally the world's first like autonomous washer dryer that like does all your clothes and some government officials going to be like, but how can we use this to make Pakistani school children fear for their lives? And that's <laughs> that's uh. just how it's going to go. Yeah, it's just, it, it is inevitable as the tides. <laughs> it's always just about owning slightly more land, or slightly more arable land. Or like, sometimes a pig. Sometimes a pig. That did happen. It happened near where I am. It did, um, actually. Yeah, I mean, we should cover the pig war sometime. Pig war. Pig war. Or maybe the, the war of Jenkins' ear. That might be fun. <laughs> I'll summarize it for you guys. A dude named Jenkin got his ear cut off. <laughs> People this, were mad. This caused quite a to-do. Violence uh, ensued. <laughs> the largest modern aircraft carrier is the USS Gerald Ford at 1,092 feet, or about 337 meters. But the first purpose-built aircraft carrier, the HMS Hermes, which began construction in 1918, was only 600 feet, or 183 meters. I feel uncomfortable with you knowing U.S. military intelligence. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't care if it's on Wikipedia, I still feel like you're not allowed to know it. You specifically! This is a specific you. <laughs> they, once, they once let me on an active naval base, um, and it was Pearl Harbor, so, uh... <laughs> I will, I will, I will state for the record, it wasn't in the 1940s. <laughs> Jessica's not a Time Lord. It was recent. She's Dark Universe, Janelle. 
<laughs> I, I don't have t- control over time. I only have control over my dimensional positioning. <laughs> well, that'll keep me up at night. I vibrate the strings that hold the universe together. Uh, <laughs> Most of us just take piano. <laughs> it's faster than transit most days. <laughs> Nobody mind the sounds of New York street traffic. I moved. Is so someone you're... drag racing? <laughs> uh, yes, pr- very or probably. Or are they sacrificing a cow? Oh, it could be both. So I I moved within the same apartment because I needed more space because I was squishing the life out of my French boyfriend trying to share a single twin bed with me. One of us was going to wake up suffocated. <laughs> and it wasn't going to be Janelle? <laughs> no. God, no. I'm fucking making it to the morning, fuckers. But uh, <laughs> either Raphael or Bianca was going to like wake up in the great beyond. So <laughs> I had to get a bedroom with more space. But as a consequence, it's apparently every motorcycle gang in the state drives past my window at excellent every hour of the night. So every now and then you're just not going to be able to hear me. You're just going to hear the Hell's Angels going for a nightly tour of East Harlem. It's fine. It's, it's fine. All, it's fine. It's, it's fine. Huh. Don't get shot in a drive-by, Janelle. <laughs> I mean, so far, so good. But do enjoy the noises of Harlem street traffic. It's like a, it's like a very strange ASMR tape. <laughs> this is a residential neighborhood with a one-way street. There's literally no reason to drag race down this street unless you're feeling a little sad about the size of your balls. That's it. <laughs> Honestly, like, having been to that neighborhood, the only people who should be driving at that speed are the profoundly bored with life. The whole neighborhood is just scary middle-aged Puerto Rican men and very scared white people. That's it. That's everybody who lives here. Also that weird garage church across from your building. Okay, the weird garage church is full of Jehovah's Witnesses. Yes. The garage full (laughs) of Jehovah's Witnesses is frightening. But to my knowledge, (laughs) they don't allow drag racing because they're not okay with fun. (laughs) They're not against it for the danger. They're against it purely on the fun aspect. (laughs) That's sort of the motto of the Jehovah's Witness. If you're having too much of a good time, it's probably sinful. (laughs) I had a a roommate two years ago who was an ex-Jehovah's Witness from the garage church across the street. She had left the church, but she's like, I still just feel guilty all the time. (laughs) She's like, I'm I'm starting to realize that, like, that's not how you're supposed to feel as you go through life. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> How am I to know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't I feel guilt. <laughs> I feel nothing but triumph. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think my very presence here is a victory, so... <laughs> <laughs> as fucked up as my lungs are, every breath I take is another accomplishment. The Washington Naval Treaty, signed after World War I between the United States, Britain, France, Italy, and Japan, limited naval military buildup by capping the number of new vessels each country could construct, as well as the size of each vessel, including battleships and aircraft carriers. Thus, by the beginning of World War II, the size of carriers had changed very little. The heavier the craft, the longer the runway necessary for takeoff. This meant that carrier-based aircraft were significantly stripped down compared to their land-based equivalents in terms of flight range, weapons, and armoring. World War II planes had a pretty limited shelf life to begin with, but carrier-based planes 
in open combat had all the survivability of a pink wafer biscuit in a hurricane. <laughs> Excellent. Me and my flying Trisket are off to fight the Germans. Let's just fill this bad boy with with flammable liquid and set her off into the sky. <laughs> Sounds like a great time. Go a no- nose first into a bullet tornado. <laughs> Aircraft carriers themselves were heavy and slow, with the turning speed and maneuverability of a glacier making them easy targets for submarines. In the early years of the Second World War, this discrepancy in naval air support resulted in a long stretch of ocean outside the range of land-based Allied anti-submarine aircraft, where military and merchant craft were left utterly vulnerable to German U-boats, this known as the Gap, as well as the Black Pit. Hmm, that's that's reassuring. Morbid? Uh, I was gonna say it's my parents' nickname for my future, but, you know. <laughs> it's fine. Just... The black pit is what you call your sc- your your student debt. <laughs> is that what that is, Janelle? <laughs> Th- this was a major problem for the Allies, which consisted primarily of the island nation of Britain and its overseas empire, the exiled governments of various captured mainland nations, and eventually the United States and the Soviet Union. While the Soviet Union occupied itself with land-based fighting along the Eastern Front, the early Western Front strategy heavily involved attacking from the sea to harass, invade, and eventually take land bases held by the Axis forces. Likewise, the German strategy in the Atlantic was to choke off vital supplies to Britain by harassing and destroying merchant convoys from her overseas allies and colonies, particularly the industrial powerhouse of the United States and the agricultural breadbasket of Canada. Where the maple leaf flies and the beavers soar. <laughs> that was weirdly patriotic all of a sudden. <laughs> I just really like the mental image of beavers flying through the sky. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta get the kank on in there, Janelle. We gotta get it in. <laughs> <laughs> it's the last thing you see before you die. Just a hearty, <laughs> wet slap as it hits you, but it's fine. Just it's a fine. startled rodent. <laughs> weighing about weighing about 10 kilos <laughs> one of my favorite news events coming out of Canada was actually that time where a bunch of people died thanks to being hit by a flying bear and <laughs> I <laughs> the most Canadian thing I've ever heard is like having a favorite bear mortality <laughs> it doesn't get any more Canadian than that. The obvious answer, then, was bigger, stronger, and more durable carriers. But when most major nations' steel and aluminum production is already dedicated to bombs, bullets, guns, tanks, trucks, etc., it becomes a tad difficult to budget in a new fleet of 150 superships. Part of the problem is, like, this is before escort carriers were much of a thing. Most of the aircraft carriers in existence were already occupied with frontline naval support. They're busy. Uh, we'll get to you later. You with your, like, butter for civilian populations. What do you need to eat or something? Fuck off. Um, <laughs> this brings us to English inventor Jeffrey Pike, who proposed an idea for the holy grail of naval warfare. An unsinkable ship, large enough to launch standard ground-based fighter planes and strong enough to take a dozen torpedoes to the hull without flinching. Pike was a Jewish atheist, journalist, and former war correspondent for the Daily Chronicle, who had first come to public attention after he was captured in Germany, traveling under a false passport in October 1914. 
He was kept in solitary confinement with limited rations and no reading material for the first 13 weeks of his internment, and eventually began loudly reciting memorized poems to himself, such as Rudyard Kipling's If and Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky. He was eventually transferred to the Ruleben internment camp, where he suffered repeated bouts of food poisoning and nearly died of acute respiratory distress syndrome, known historically as double pneumonia. This is the most interesting human being who's ever lived. I'm fascinated. See, the first the first source I looked at, like, just sort of glossed over him, and I'm like, wait, 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 what? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Life was like, are you feeling lucky, punk? And then a Jewish atheist from the early 20th century was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I don't think God has shit on a Jew quite as hard since Job. Holy shit. Jehovah looking down going like, oh, you don't believe in me, huh? Well, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) He's after like 40 years of the angry wrath of a deity that he doesn't believe in. Pike, alongside another English prisoner, Edward Falk, escaped together in July 1915 and made their way to the Netherlands, hitching a ride on a tram to Berlin, followed by a train west, then walking the last 80 miles, around 130 kilometers, to Dutch territory through difficult mud-soaked terrain. Pike's telegram back to the Daily Chronicle from Amsterdam, detailing his escape, turned out to be a major coup for the paper. When Pike returned to Britain, his editor requested that he he write a series of articles, but Pike declined, having rather lost interest in continuing his career as a war correspondent. (laughs) Gee! (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Hey, I know you just spent like a year dying of a lung infection in an internment camp, but how about some work? Hey, kid, you're gonna be a star. (laughs) You you and those fucked up lungs of yours, you're gonna make it big. (laughs) Holy fuck. Uh, He nonetheless wrote and spoke extensively about his experiences, and likewise arranged parcels to friends back at the Ruleben internment camp, each containing both food and a false compartment at the bottom containing details of his method of escape. (laughs) Oh. I mean, handy. Uh, There's no evidence that anyone followed through on his methods, but, uh, yeah. (laughs) He's just like, in case you need it. Before you leave the house every day, keys, wallet, phone, escape plan. Uh, This was only the first of a frankly bizarrely varied series of career choices, as Pike later took up stock speculation, ran a school, lost all his money and declared bankruptcy, campaigned against anti-Semitism and for data-based response to prejudice, founded an organization that donated skills, labor, and other non-financial resources to the Republican side of the Spanish Civil War, and likewise became a researcher and inventor. I like I like the non-monetary resources, including talent. It just sounds like he gives a handy to any soldier who needs it. <laughs> just hanging out in the Spanish docks, winking at sailors. <laughs> <laughs> He's boosting morale, Jessica. It's an important role. Uh, you know, the most important part of uh, non-financial military resources is the happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is why neither of us is allowed to work for the military. Uh, Pike was eventually suspected by MI5 of being a dormant, no longer active Soviet agent, but that's not really important to what I'm talking about now, so I'm gonna skip it. <laughs> the fact that that was not one of the more interesting things about him fascinates me. <laughs> You're just like, next, alright, not that interesting. 
In the lead-up to World War II, Pike was behind an independent operation to conduct opinion polls within Germany by planting polling agents to covertly co conduct informal interviews under the guise of being touring golfers. What? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm golfing, just kidding, stealth poll. What? He's just holding a microphone disguised as a golf club under your mouth? Yeah, one contemporary commented that Pike had enough interviewers in the country to challenge the Frankfurt Golf Club to a game. <laughs> Interesting. The purpose of the polling had been to collect data to perhaps undermine Hitler's public image with a true reflection of the confidence of the German people and their leader, or at the very least, the German people who are really into golf's opinion of their leader. I feel like it's not a representative polling sample. Though this pilot was successful, the operation was never picked up by the British government. Among his practical inventions, Pike came up with a system of balloon-mounted microphones that could be used to triangulate the position of aircraft. Less effective, but similar in concept to radar, a technology that existed at the time, but whose development was clo a closely held military secret, far from public knowledge. Pike likewise proposed a lightweight troop transport vehicle that would use large screws for propulsion in place of wheels for use on snow and similar rough terrain. The idea was initially rejected, but after Lord Mountbatten Mount took over as chief of combined operations from Roger Keyes in October 1941, the idea was revisited. The screwmobile idea was later rendered redundant by Canadian improvements to the treads of the American M29 Weasel, or in its more amphibious form, the M29 Water Weasel. Uh, nonetheless, Mountbatten hired Pike and appointed him to the position of Director of Programs. I just want to make business cards that say, Janelle Como, Water Weasel. <laughs> That's all I want in this life. I just want to drive something called the M29 Water Weasel. <laughs> That is way more fun than the average car name. Like, I don't want a Pinto. I don't want a Jetta. I want a Water Weasel. <laughs> that sounds fun. It does sound I mean, fun. I... I'm probably going to get in trouble for driving a troop transport vehicle with treads <laughs> through downtown Vancouver. <laughs> but it does sound fun. I wouldn't take the training wheels off your bicycle, but it does sound yeah. fun. There's actually, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Badonkadonk. Uh, 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 what? Yeah, the Badonkadonk. Uh, it's a tank that is available on Amazon, I think. Either that or eBay. I'm not sure where you can get it. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh... Yeah, how much does it cost again? Are you about um, to Google the phrase Badonkadonk? Because you're about to find out it has two meanings. Uh, uh, but, like, obviously the first meaning is, like, the JL421 Badonkadonk Land Cruiser... Um, which, yes, is available on Amazon. It comes, that's uh, the first thing that comes to my mind. It has a 3.4 rating from 387 customers. Who gives a three-star rating to a tank? Come on now. It's a tank. Look, your neighbors either live in fear or they don't. If you control the Kodasak, five stars. If not, one. The first uh, five-star review calls it a mom must-have. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if my mother ever got a hold of a tank, there would be casualties. Absolutely not. I can't find the price, though, so that is disappointing. Mm, um, that's how they get you. See all buying options. Presumably, you can't get a used one. Can you buy a tank I... on layaway? Is that, a, is that an option? Do they have financing? Is there a payment plan? 
Okay, like, can I do this in installments? Who just has tank money lying around? Ooh, it has a PA system and a plush interior. External well, now camera. I'm sold. Wow. <laughs> if there's if there's a fuzzy steering wheel cover, I'm in. Price does not include shipping and handling. That makes sense. <laughs> but are fuzzy dice sold separately? That's the question. You really shouldn't go without. Uh, anyway. <laughs> not that I not that I have that bookmarked or it on my computer or anything. <laughs> Keep your eye on the news, kids. In late 1942, Pike submitted his proposal of how to close the Greenland Gap, a massive, unsinkable aircraft carrier, all of it entirely made out of ice. Essentially, a miniature maneuverable island that could be used as a mobile airfield. This was inspired in part by ice's buoyancy in water and in part by the surprising durability of thick ice, as shown by the resilience of icebergs to artillery bombardment. (laughs) <laughs> They're like, well, this shit brought down the Titanic. We may as well just make fucking aircraft carrier out of it, I guess. My big question was like, who was bombarding icebergs? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I assume it was accidental and incidental. Like the you know, like the Norwegian military just accidentally just like blew up an iceberg. But at the same time, I'm curious. <laughs> Somebody's just like having a blood feud with a glacier. It's entirely possible. You're going down, ice shelf. Take this, Antarctica. <laughs> Maybe it's like the descendants of like that one explorer, Robert Falcon Scott, just getting their vengeance. Excellent. You know, global warming isn't real. The real reason why the ice shelves are disappearing is just Robert Falcon Scott's ghost getting vengeance for his death. That sounds very scientific. An angry ghost is punching all the ice. Antarctica isn't melting, it's haunted. <laughs> <laughs> That's worse. <laughs> decidedly worse. Pike was far from the first to suggest an island made of ice. A German scientist, Dr. Gerke, had even performed a few experiments in Lake Zurich in 1930. Pike, however, was the most successful in pitching the, the idea higher up the chain of, chain of command. The written proposal, well over 200 pages, came with two notes from Pike, one requesting that Mountbatten read at least the first 30 pages before deciding whether or not the idea might be worthwhile, and that he read it himself rather than handing it off to that damned fool Lushington. Mountbatten read the first few pages, skinned the rest, and then handed it over to Brigadier Wildman Lushington, who, fool or no, concluded that the concept was feasible. How many pages of a proposal do you really need to read? It's just, we're going to make a really big piece of ice. It's a huge, huge boat. How do you even stretch that into 200 pages? That could not be a page turner. Like, I'm, I'm willing to bet that at least around page 193, it gets a little dry. Maybe he was just like, like, like a lazy student and he just like increased the font and like <laughs> fucked up fucked with the margins and like it's like there's several 20 pages right in the middle that are just like ice boat ice boat ice boat in all caps all the way through <laughs> perfect <laughs> beautiful genius they won't know what uh, hit them in december 1942 prime minister churchill ordered that research on the berg ship should take high priority, focusing first on the possibility of carving the ship out of a natural existing iceberg. 
However, this immediately proved infeasible, as most existing natural ice was either too thin, too brittle, or too bottom-heavy, lacking enough surface area for the British military's purposes. There's too much junk in this ice's trunk. Try again. <laughs> that, that iceberg is thick. <laughs> <laughs> Millennials will sexualize anything. <laughs> do the Antarctic ice shelves got booty? They do. <laughs> she do. She do. <laughs> uh, under mechanical tests, like, ice was likewise found to be far too unpredictable for use in a high-pressure situation such as, say, combat. Tests found that generally ice could withstand roughly 22.5 kilograms of stress per square centimeter, but occasionally buckled under as little as 4.9 kilograms per square centimeter. Yeah, I gotta say, that's not something that I want in something I'm gonna park a fucking airplane on. I, I like no. stability. If not in your men, then most definitely in your tarmac. (laughs) Oh, never in my men. I can't actually feel arousal unless I'm getting a call from the police station. (laughs) (laughs) I can only reach climax while posting bail (laughs) for someone else. (laughs) Can't believe I just sent that into a microphone. Holy shit. (laughs) The police are just like, and you're willing to take responsibility for him? And you're like, yes, sir. And they're like, why are you this sweaty? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just the sweatiest person at the Bond office. (laughs) Everyone looks like depressed and annoyed. And you're just sitting in the car going, oh yeah. (laughs) You call it the bus to Rikers Island. I call it the tunnel of love. It's it's funny because my boyfriend is a software engineer who will not jaywalk. Oh, uh, you've come so far, Janelle. <laughs> I've upgraded. This one can use an oven unsupervised. The height of heights in terms of male companionship. I've had to recalibrate my whole sexuality. It's fine. I don't know who I am anymore. <laughs> Maybe this is your midlife crisis. Maybe you're just like, you know, getting <laughs> wild, getting crazy, dating a man with actual job prospects. <laughs> I'm rebelling. <laughs> it's kind of like how I hit I hit 28 and I just decided to see what my hair would look like long. I've been rocking the Hitler youth cut for a while now. Let's see what I would look like as a woman. <laughs> uh, no, it makes you look like the most bullied boy at the Torah study. That's what it makes you look like. <laughs> Yeah, at least when it's short, there's some ambiguity about whether or not I'm a transvestite or a lesbian. But, like, when it's long, it's just like, no, you're you're the kid where nobody showed up to your bar mitzvah. <laughs> the two genders, lesbian and Jew. Lesbian and seminary student. That's, that's the dichotomy there. Uh, however, hope was renewed when a former professor of Pike... Herman Mark, and his assistant, Peter Hohenstein, both scientists at Brooklyn Polytechnic, discovered that a mixture of water and wood pulp froze into a form of ice that retained its buoyancy, but was far more predictable, melted far slower, and was roughly as durable as concrete. Which, they need <laughs> I'm sorry, but Hohen- Dr. Hohenstein sounds like the male stripper that nerdy girls get for their bachelorette party. <laughs> Just like a ripped German dude in a lab coat and nothing else. <laughs> if I marry if I marry this poor 
functional adult I've tricked into dating me. Please hire Dr. Hohenstein for the bachelorette party. <laughs> I'm all that I celebration. Want. I'm willing to spring out. <laughs> Mountbatten later gave an after-dinner speech where he was quoted with the following anecdote. Possibly a dramatic exaggeration. Possibly the actual truth. Who even knows? Quote, I was sent to Checkers to see the Prime Minister and was told he was in the bath. I said, good, that's exactly where I want him to be. I nipped up the stairs and called out to him, I have a block of new material which I would like to put in your bath. Uh, according to this version of events, Churchill suggested demonstrating the new material at the coming Quebec conference after the dramatic bathtub demonstration where the outer film of the ice melted, but the newly uncovered wood pulp insulated the rest of the ice from thawing. This is this is not a level of intimacy with Winston Churchill that I'm comfortable with. No, no. I've never wanted to imagine Winston Churchill in the bath. <laughs> I've just I've never wanted to bust in on the prime minister and do a fucking military demonstration while he's trying to clean his foreskin. That's like that's just not <laughs> a level of intimacy I'm comfortable with. Like, I can't even properly imagine it. I keep trying to imagine Winston Churchill nude in the bath, but either I imagine him fully dressed with a cigar in his mouth, just, uh, like, wet head to toe, or I just imagine a bulldog puppy. (laughs) I think it's my brain trying to protect me from myself. (laughs) I think sexualizing Winston Churchill is treason. You're gonna get court-martialed for that shit. Uh, Pycrete is so ludicrously strong... At an inch thick, it can support the weight of a car. You can hit it with a hammer or shoot it with a gun. Which, incidentally, someone did. At the August 1943 Quebec conference, Lord Mountbatten demonstrated the new find for the various British and American admirals and generals in attendance. Pulling out a pistol, he first shot a block of ice, which shattered. He then shot a similar block of pycrete which the bullets ricocheted off of, nearly striking Admiral Ernest King, the American chief of naval operations, grazing his trouser leg. (laughs) Near Miss Manslaughter of an Admiral aside, Churchill, Roosevelt, and the rest of the military bigwigs were sufficiently impressed by Lord Mountbatten's avant-garde papier-mâché project, and production and testing of Pycrete was greenlit. (laughs) If you shoot it in front of the Prime Minister, you can have money. It's the funding model we're going with. Yeah, I think this is the second time we have mentioned Admiral Ernest King, and I kind of feel sorry for the man. <laughs> I don't know how much an American admiral was paid during the Second World War, but it probably was not enough. <laughs> like, he, 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 thinks, he thinks he's out of danger just because he's not on a boat. <laughs> he's just sitting <laughs> in a dining hall in Quebec, but danger <laughs> comes from all corners. <laughs> you fool. Thus came Project Habakkuk. Named after a verse from the Bible, the words of the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. Pike had already set up a lab in a meat locker beneath London's Smithfield Meat Market, hidden behind a row row of hanging carcasses, with commandos disguised as butcher's assistants standing guard. I'm just so jealous that men can be told, like, hey, meet me in an abandoned meat locker under the ground, and then they get to live? Ridiculous. Hashtag male privilege. That's... 
I just know that as a woman, if somebody tells you, like, hey, meet me in a meat locker underground, make peace with your god and say goodbye to your family. Yeah, you want to, like, leave a note with your lawyer explaining <laughs> who you went with and where you went. <laughs> Break your necklace and scatter a trail of beads. Like, you've got to Hansel and Gretel that shit if anyone's gonna find the body. You need to leave a paper trail, otherwise your parents are not getting closure. <laughs> God damn it, being a man is so easy. Unfair. That's what, like, that's honestly been my, my my social strategy for the last 29 years. I'm just like, being a woman is hard. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but optional. <laughs> Entirely optional. <laughs> I'm like, this game is stupid. Why am I not allowed to play the gender of my protagonist? Oh well. <laughs> See, I could. You can keep the equal pay. I just want the late night meat locker meetings. <laughs> I met up with a friend the other day who was like, "Yeah, so I went on a date with this girl that I'd never met before in Thailand. We met in an abandoned warehouse, and I was like, you would not survive four minutes as a woman. No, <laughs> absolutely not. That is the beginning of an urban legend about getting your kidneys stolen. <laughs> For a man, that's the start to a funny story about an amazing date. As a woman, that's how your Dateline episode starts. You enter <laughs> yeah. the warehouse and then John Quinones pops out of nowhere. <laughs> Keith Morrison's narrating your childhood as your mother cries in the background. There's just a lot of, like... Really sad interviews with people who knew you. Like, <laughs> you will be missed. Like, and like, I think you get used to, as a woman, people being concerned for your basic safety. I, I met this dude who's like, notoriously a bit of a creep. And he's, in fact, so creepy that every time he is seen speaking to me in public, a, a middle-aged woman steps out of the mist and pointedly asks me if I need a ride home. And <laughs> at the point where people feel the need to protect a 200-pound transvestite from your attentions, you might be a bit of a freak. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good. That's good. The middle-aged women have spoken. Get in the car. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I walk home in downtown Vancouver at three in the morning on a regular basis, and no one bothers me, because that is the power of my androgyny. <laughs> like, people kind of think that I might be a woman. They're, they're not willing to go out of their way to harass me in case that makes them gay. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the ultimate weapon. The homophobia. <laughs> Good. Uh, Who needs pepper spray? Uh, with the help of Max Peritz, a molecular biologist, it was determined that the ideal mixture was of 14% wood pulp. However, Peritz likewise determined that when, while ice and pycrete can be molded into any shape that metal can be, it likewise deforms slowly over time, known as cold flow. See, when water freezes, it doesn't actually stop moving. It just flows super, super slow. Therefore, the ship would begin to warp over time unless its surface was properly insulated, its internal structures were reinforced with steel, and its temperature maintained at 3 degrees Fahrenheit via a refrigeration plant and duct system. You might then ask, 
well, how the hell were they planning on putting an engine in it? But apparently the the main idea they had was uh, external engine nacelles outside of the boat on either side of it. I don't believe they ever quite figured out how to put a rudder on the thing. <laughs> so basically their answer is not important. Get in the ice. Where we're going, we don't need to steer. Admittedly, the whole thing traveled at about uh, six knots, so it wasn't moving terribly fast. You could take a while to think about it. Uh, six knots is about 11 kilometers per hour, or about seven miles per hour. So, like a brisk jog. <laughs> it's it's like a middle-aged woman with walking poles trying to work off her lean cuisine. That's <laughs> That's about the speed. This is, this is, a, like, slightly faster than inner London traffic. <laughs> uh, but larger-scale tests of a giant man-made iceberg couldn't be conducted in any typical lab or walk-in freezer, and simply la- launching the thing into the English Channel w- lacked a certain something in both of secrecy and operational security. No, <laughs> they needed somewhere big, cold, and largely devoid of people. Is this Canada? The project was assigned to the National Research Council of Canada. God damn it. <laughs> and the location decided was two lakes within the bounds of Jasper National Park. Oh, god damn it. Alberta, are you for real? <laughs> Alberta, man. A massive stretch of wilderness located on the Albertan side of the Rocky Mountain Range. I like, they're like, what's a large featureless wasteland that's of no particular value? The place Janelle and Jessica grew up, that'll do just fine. <laughs> the typical vacation hotspot of the province of our birth. Yes, that one. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it, have some more ice. <laughs> uh, I, can, I think I can speak for everyone when I say, we're good. We're good for ice. <laughs> yeah, we're all set. Thanks. We got this. The first lake, Lake Patricia was used to test potential construction issues and the resilience and behavior of Pike Creek during warm summer weather. The Lake Patricia team, largely conscientious objectors, who had no idea what they were working on, produced a miniature prototype bergship, 60 by 30 feet long, weighing a thousand tons. Can you imagine signing up for the war, being drafted into the war, and, and making yourself known as a conscientious objector, and they're like, you don't want to fight? Fine. Pilot this fake iceberg made of wood chips. <laughs> You'd feel like you were being mocked. <laughs> yeah, like, is this some kind of joke? Why won't you let me see, like, why won't you let me just go home? <laughs> Are you making fun of me? <laughs> what is this make work bullshit? <laughs> Never mind, they're like, oh, they didn't know what they were working on. I'm like, yeah, like, I think you can say that about, like, the people who are doing, like, working on nuclear tests in the Nevada. I'm pretty sure after you build the thing, you have some fucking idea. They're like, <laughs> alright, time to pilot this mystery barge into the lake. And you're like, you're just, you're just mad. Just say that you're mad at me for not fighting. You know what, let's just... Yeah, just like, I get it. I'm a Mormon. Whatever. <laughs> you know... This is just where we put all the Mennonites, just for the entire war. We just shoved all the Mennonites into a war, into a fucking lake in Jasper Park, and made them make weird thousand-ton papier-mâché projects. That's what we did. Fantastic. (laughs) Uh, The second lake, Lake Louise, was where the strength test took place. The Lake Louise team repeatedly shelled, bombed, and torpedoed the Pikerite. There's even a potentially apocryphal story that Lord Mountbatten himself took a shotgun to the stuff. 
Oh, fun. I personally would not, because you have to be pretty close in order to shoot something with a shotgun. And I, uh, he's already nearly killed a man this way, so I would not. <laughs> if you're within eye shard distance, probably don't shoot the shotgun. Yeah, That's... you nearly killed a perfectly good Ernest. Let's not. <laughs> We're running low on those. Yeah, Stop there's it. only so many Ernests in the world, and, like, we need to keep the stocks up for the war. <laughs> you can't be killing all of our good Ernests. There's there's a certain importance in being Ernest. <laughs> <laughs> Nerd. You deserve to get swirlied just for that reference. Uh, unfortunately, the Lake Louise test confirmed that in order to withstand torpedoes, the Bergship would need a hull of at least 35 feet thick, over 10 meters, compared to a World War II Iowa-class battleship, which had a hull only 12.1 inches thick. I was gonna say, 35 seems impractical. That's... That is quite large. She thick, with two C's. But, uh... Thick. <laughs> she prohibitively expensive, I would say. <laughs> the Berg ship is very much the J-Lo of military advancements. Stop yes. sexualizing failed military icebergs. Further, uh, it would require a landing strip of at least 2,000 feet, or 600 meters, in order to launch heavy bombers. That, plus a width of 300 feet, or 90 meters, meant that the ship would weigh around... Tw- Two million tons. <laughs> Fifteen times heavier than the largest pre-World War II carriers and require no less than 1.7 million tons of pikerite. Also, it'll need a landing strip of 3,000 meters is what he said. <laughs> He's into some weird shit. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is a very specific kind of fetish. <laughs> Too specific. Your sex license is revoked. Go sit in the corner. Uh, Janelle, 2019. Jessica, stop sexualizing failed military icebergs. Janelle, five minutes later. (laughs) (laughs) I am an artiste, okay? That's what she said. (sighs) This would be a massive expense in in terms of both labor and resources. All for a single ship the cost of which was estimated as around that of an entire fleet of conventional aircraft carriers. Holy shit. However, financial cost was not what sealed the fate of Habakkuk. After all, an existential struggle against a powerful and intractable foe has a way of making funds come available. What ultimately doomed Habakkuk was that, was that the problem it first set out to solve was eventually addressed through far more traditional means. By 1944, the position of the Allied militaries had fundamentally changed. Through a dedicated program of construction, there were now far more long-range carriers and warships available that could be diverged from direct naval support to escort missions in both the Pacific and the Atlantic. Likewise, the success of British code-breaking efforts in the intervening years meant that convoys could avoid submarine wolf packs with relative ease. Further, with the introduction of new fuel tanks, the range of land-based aircraft had improved to the point that little of the ocean was left undefended by air support. Thus, Habakkuk was abandoned in 1944. The 1,000-ton scale model took a full three summers to melt. (laughs) 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 Gaze upon your failure for three consecutive years. I mean, they put it in the right place to study it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, but now uh, it's a fucking permanent tourist attraction. Not what we were going for. The infrastructure for the test was simply allowed to sink to the bottom of Lake Patricia, where it was later rediscovered by scuba divers in the 1970s. Very Uh, confused scuba divers. What the fuck is that? In 1988, the site was marked with an underwater monument, courtesy of the Underwater Archaeological Society of Alberta, and which exists. That's a good use of time in a landlocked province with no major bodies of water. Perfect. And in 1989, it was likewise commemorated by a shoreside plaque courtesy of the National Research Council and Parks Canada. For people who don't want to scuba dive to the bottom of a hundred foot deep glacial lake just to look at a scum-covered statue and find out what an ice cream headache feels like from the outside in. (laughs) Squares. Speaking of somebody who has, in fact, swam in a glacial-fed lake... Ah! <laughs> I have swam in Lake Patricia. It actually sucks. It sucks a lot. It sucks so bad. <laughs> like, if you keep your head underwater for long enough, it hurts. <laughs> yeah, there was actually a 2009 Mistbusters episode about Habakkuk, uh, where oh, they fun. used uh, newspapers instead of wood pulp and made a small boat uh, with the help of some Alaskan teenagers. Did they confirm that it's dumb as fuck? Uh, They confirmed that it was indeed bulletproof and incredibly strong. They successfully launched a boat, but it quickly began to fall apart. And they eventually concluded that uh, making an aircraft carrier out of this material was plausible, but decidedly impractical. See, I have no military or engineering experience, and I probably could have told you that giant military dirty iceberg was a bad plan. But yeah, that's Project Habakkuk. (laughs) Wow, I almost think the bats were a better idea. <laughs> Military attack bats, not as dumb as they sound, apparently. Yeah, just an I- iceberg filled with spitfires. That's that's the answer. <laughs> I guess I don't even know where we're going to go from here for dumb military operations, unless Jessica can dig out a plan for the German soldiers to light their own farts. I think we've pretty much... Uh, <laughs> this is the bottom of the barrel, folks. <laughs> Oh, see, hear that scraping sound? Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yes, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, I have been Jessica. And I have been Janelle, plus a significant amount of New York City traffic noise. And we are fat, Fat, French, French, and and fabulous. fabulous. Yo, man, let's get out of here. Word to your mother. Ice, ice, baby,